You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. It is one thing to say, then, that Christian scholarship must aim at promoting the goals of Christ's kingdom, and another thing to say that, in order to qualify as genuinely Christian, the scholarship must aim at some religiously important goal. We find these words in chapter 5 of a new work called To the Life of the Mind, Some Advice for Evangelical Scholars, published in 2014 by Erdmans and written by our guest on Christian Humanist Profiles today, Dr. Richard Mao. Dr. Mao is a professor of faith and public life at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, where he is also president emeritus, having served for 20 years as Fuller's president from 1993 to 2013. He holds the B.A. from Houghton College, the M.A. from the University of Alberta, and the Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. Prior to coming to Fuller in 1985 as professor of Christian philosophy and ethics, he served as professor of philosophy at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan for 17 years. Dr. Mao is widely published and is recognized as a strong voice for the thoughtful engagement of Christians in the public square with the broader society in which we live, and particularly with those of other faith traditions who are our neighbors and friends. His books include Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World, He Shines in All That's Fair, Culture and Common Grace, and Calvinism in the Las Vegas Airport, Making Connections in Today's World. His most recent book, the subject for our discussion today, seeks to help evangelical Christians in academia serve honorably as Christians in their work and to help them see their task in the intellectual realm as one in which they can truly serve Christ our Lord. I'm very pleased to invite Dr. Mao to speak with us on this helpful little book and the question of Christian intellectual life. Dr. Mao, my warmest welcome to you to Christian Humanist Profiles. Hey, great to be with you. Looking forward to this discussion. Very much so uh, as well. To begin, um, as we often do in Christian Humanist Profiles, I'd like to ask you if you'd um, give your listeners a brief insight into your personal history, your, your faith journey, and your history as an academic Christian. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, I was raised in uh, an evangelical home. My father had had uh, a very uh, profound adult conversion uh, to evangelical faith in Christ, and he uh, got into uh, studying theology mainly by being involved in a mission work where their main textbook was the uh, Schofield Reference Bible. Later on, he did go to seminary and uh uh, developed a little more of a broader reform theology, but basically that uh, evangelical pietism uh, was really at the heart of his ministry. And what that meant was that uh, there was not a lot of great respect in my uh, extended family and my broader circle of, uh, of friends and acquaintances as a, as a preacher's kid uh, in the intellectual life. Uh, people would actually make fun of it. You know, I could still remember people talking about philosophy rather than philosophy. And, uh, uh, I don't, you know, don't give me exegesis, just give me Jesus and, mm. and this kind of thing. And, uh, I went to college and, uh, I was an English major. I, I took, uh, some philosophy courses and, uh, much to my chagrin, <laughs> I actually enjoyed that stuff and began to think that, mm. I might want to spend my life uh, working on these kinds of things. And with quite a bit of opposition from family and friends, I decided, uh, even though I took some seminary education, uh, decided to go on in uh, philosophy. And uh, 
and and always with a sense that uh, I wanted to honor the best of that anti-intellectual tradition. You know, one of my my roadshow speeches about evangelical higher education during the time that I was going around speaking as a president uh, was that the evangelical movement uh, up until roughly the 1950s, uh, post-World War II, uh, returning generation after post-World War II, uh, really engaged in a kind of reform of of fundamentalism and the previous evangelicalism on three points. And that is, uh, uh, in the past, there was a very strong anti-intellectualism. Secondly, that was coupled with a very strong otherworldliness. And then finally, that was coupled with a kind of separatistic spirit that we had to stay away from the world. We had to stay away from people with whom we disagreed about spiritual and other kinds of matters. And uh, there was a generation, Carl Henry, uh, one of the great evangelical leaders, wrote a book in 1947 called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. And he basically set forth a program that was reformist on on those points. And, And the more I thought about that, and I was very much guided by that agenda myself of, uh, of opposing anti-intellectualism, otherworldliness, and a kind of separatistic spirit, but at the same time realizing, at least from my perspective, that the alternative to anti-intellectualism wasn't intellectualism, and the alternative to otherworldliness was not a thoroughgoing thisworldliness, and that uh, uh, the alternative to separatism was not a, a sort of promiscuous ecumenism, uh, but that we we had to at least listen to whatever it was that was worth holding on to in those voices from the past. And so in my intellectual life, I've really uh, struggled with the proper role of scholarship in in the Christian life, and especially in the life of uh, folks like us who who are really committed to uh, intellectual growth as Christians. Mm. Hmm. I, and I and this this does lead really directly into this into this book. Um, I, I I want to um, first of all thank you for 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 putting this uh, putting this out there. It's particularly invigorating just for me in in reading it at this particular time in the semester. It's the spring semester. We've been two and a half months in, and you know midterm exams have gone by, and we're dragging through these months waiting for the spring to come. well you don't have to worry about that in Pasadena, <laughs> but up here in the upper midwest uh you know the spring is starting to show, but we're really kind of down in the trenches right now, and these words really remind me uh of why I do what i do so so thanks for that um specifically. Why why um, did you decide upon this project to to put this together and and and, and publish this uh, this little book? Well, that's an interesting question because I I just had an exchange with a publisher that who wants me to to do a work and I'm 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 developing the plan for it and uh, and he said rather sarcastically, uh, yeah, I read your last little book that you did with Erdman's and uh, I, I hope you'll write a real book this time. Uh, and you know he was, he was uh, referring to the fact that this is a pretty short book. I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know what is it about seventy pages or so in its published yep. form? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and uh, and and uh, I 
when I worked with my, my good friend Jan Todd, who's the vice president at, at Erdman's, uh, we decided that we wanted a short book. Uh, the great business leader, Max Dupree, who's written some wonderful books on Christian leadership, uh, has often said, you know, when he sits down to write a book, he wants to write a book that somebody can read on a flight from O'Hare to uh, LAX, uh, you know, a good four-hour flight kind of book. And uh, that's really what uh, the publisher and I had in mind in, in this case. Uh, not a long book with a lot of footnotes, uh, but just uh, almost uh, meditative, uh, but giving some counsel, giving some direction. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was uh, in part, uh, as I come to the end of my presidential career, and I'm back into teaching now, but I'm in my 70s. Uh, you know, thinking back over my life, what do I want to say to, uh, especially a younger generation of evangelicals who are coming along in scholarship? Many of us had to had to fight in a very direct way the extreme anti-intellectualism of the past. Uh, one of the great things that's happened in, uh, in the last couple of decades is the emergence of uh, really solid. Christian scholarship in fields like the sciences and uh, history and philosophy and literature. Uh, I, I just interject this when, mm -hmm. when I was just getting started with my own scholarship. I got a call. I was in the philosophy department at Calvin College at the time, and I got a call from the dean of a well-known university, secular university. They were going to put on uh, something to do with religion in America. And he said, we decided we should have an evangelical, and you're the one that we would really like to have uh, on the panel. And I said, it turned out that I could not do it. I had a genuine conflict, and their dates were set. And, then, and, and, and he honestly, I mean, this is an, a, a, an accurate thing. He said, well, we're sorry you can't do it. Are there any other smart ones? <laughs> and, I mean, this was back in the 70s. Yeah. And the image of evangelicalism uh was, you know, we, we really weren't scholars. And uh, it was a time when, you know, people like George Marsden and all of, uh, Oz Guinness and, and others were coming along, Alvin Plantinga, you know, Nathan Hatch, people like that. Uh, so there were evangelicals in scholarship, but, but it wasn't widely recognized yet as a legitimate intellectual community. And uh, so having come from that, uh, I guess I wanted the new generation to know what people like uh, Nicholas Waldersdorf and Nathan Hatch, Mark Knoll, and others, uh, what they what they had to do in order to get us to the point today where I think evangelicalism is recognized as one of the legitimate uh, areas of religious scholarship or faith based scholarship uh, in in North America, and 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 also to offer words of encouragement and. Uh, and counsel, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, entering into academic life and pursuing the the intellectual calling on a on basically a career uh, uh, basis can be a lonely thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, you know, we all bring a lot of hopes and fears. We don't talk about that much, but yeah. uh, you know, worrying about your colleagues, peer-reviewed things. Uh, Worrying about how you're going to get started on your next project, uh, what ought you to be doing? These are pretty, pretty fundamental questions that uh, are are 
recognizable in, in, in just about all of us. Mm-hmm. And yet we, we really haven't talked a lot uh, in writing and in uh, mentoring people about, uh, you know, what it means, say, as a PhD student to have written a chapter and you're going in to see your dissertation director and uh, the, the fears the, that you have when you're outside that person's office. These are these are big issues. And yeah. I just decided to talk about that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I think this is I think this is a, a very a very good book to give as a as a gift to 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 young faculty who are coming on or advanced graduate students who might be looking at further work, um, and just asking those que- you know they're asking those questions. It certainly is good for um, for them to hear from uh, from someone who's who's been around a bit and and has un- undergone some of the uh, the things that you have and seen the transformations that you have to give them that advice. I think that's really um, Really, really useful. Um, a little bit just just uh, before we, I'd like to actually return to this subject of, of advice for for um, young young faculty. But I want to start, I guess, our discussion of some of the points in the uh, in the text um, with the origin story. I mean, the question of anti-intellectualism within evangelicalism. I mean, that's certainly i i think in in some pockets still around um but but maybe wasn't isn't quite at the the fever pitch that it might have been uh uh decades ago what i mean what do you what do they get wrong that those that say that intellectual life is is not for the christian yeah i th- i think what they got wrong was not that uh insisting that everyone have a profound intellectual life because I'm, I'm, it doesn't bother me at all that mother Teresa didn't read a lot of books. You know, uh, we have different callings and the like, but, but to realize that, um, a sustainable community of faith, uh, really needs at least some people spending a lot of time thinking Mm -hmm. and a lot of time engaging uh, challenges, intellectual challenges, uh, a lot of time engaging in research and, and scholarship and teaching a younger generation. I think that uh, the sustainability of a, of a community, uh, I've been in for 15 years now actively involved in co-directing an evangelical Mormon dialogue. And it's interesting to see the LDS community, uh, with some wonderful scholars. Uh, they're in many ways like, in the situation where, you know, the guy called me, are there any other bright ones? Well, there are a lot of bright ones in that LDS community, uh, but they're fighting uh, or at least engaging uh, some of the same challenges. And uh, But a healthy uh, faith-based community, uh, the sustainability of that community, uh, especially when you have a younger generation coming up. Uh, I use an example on the book of... Uh, one of the evangelical saints of the past, Bernard Ram, who wrote a book in the, the 60s on uh, called The Christian View of Science of the Scriptures. And he uh, allowed for uh, an ancient earth, uh, he even allowed for uh, something less than a universal flood, uh, just raised the questions for many of us that are so important to, to be engaged in. And he got attacked all over the place in the evangelical world for this. Mm. Denying the Bible, you know, leading people astray. Mm. And when I talked to him in his, uh, in my adult life, when I got to know him as a friend, uh, 
and I quote this in the book, you know, I, I said, do you ever, you ever regret having gotten into all that? And he said, no, because I would not want any student of mine uh, after studying with me to go off to Harvard and lose his or her faith uh, because I failed to raise questions and, and make them aware of, of challenges to the faith. And to me, that's a very important part of it all. And that is equipping a generation that is willing to uh, remain faithful to the best of a tradition and at the same time uh, engage new challenges and, and, and uh, new new concerns. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that um, as a as a professor at a college at the Lutheran Church, we we do talk a, a, quite a bit about Martin Luther and his perspective on Christian freedom. And and your your last statement just called to mind uh, our discussions I had as a young faculty member here. Um, and I want to maybe direct this um, in this in this way. As Christians, how does our freedom uh, en- enable us to ask those questions? I mean, it seems to me that there's a direct connection there. Yeah. No, no. I, and, and, you know, I think that's such an important question because uh, I, I don't I, I've got to say in my heart of hearts, uh, I can't imagine entertaining, seriously entertaining uh, the question of whether or not. Uh, Jesus Christ is the sufficient, all-sufficient Savior. I mean, mm-hmm. me, uh, that's foundational. Right. Uh, but but in many ways, based on that, uh, I think I can ask a lot of questions. You know, the great John Stott, one of the great mm-hmm. you know, British evangelical Anglican leaders, uh, once wrote an article in Sojourners magazine. And he said, you know, we've got to be conservative radicals. Mm-hmm. To be conservative is to conserve what is absolutely essential mm-hmm. uh, to our to our Christian discipleship, to our Christian faith, and from that perspective, uh, submit everything else to radical critique. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, that was a, a, a kind of aha moment that right. uh, one of those things that somebody says that really sticks with me. That is, mm. I I don't just have the freedom; I have an obligation to exercise that freedom. And I'm exercising on behalf of the Christian community. Mm. Uh, my grandmother wasn't ready to you know, deal with all those questions. Uh, and there are a lot of people like my grandmother uh, in the churches today. Uh, but some of us, on their behalf and on behalf of the, their grandchildren, uh, need to be wrestling with the questions. But at the same time, out of a sense of security that... Uh, uh, you know that 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 we do have a foundation that we're standing on, and that uh, that I, I quote in my book, and some people have told me this is a very dangerous <laughs> comment to quote, but uh, Simone Weil, he says, mm. you know, if we're ever faced with a a choice between following Jesus and following the truth, uh, follow the truth because you can't go too far in the direction of the truth without falling into the arms of Jesus, mm. and uh, that sense that. He is there. There's a lot of mystery, uh, but that I can be confident that, uh, and, and again, you know, there are dangers in that. Mm-hmm. But if I'm genuinely seeking to understand uh, his lordship over all things, and mm. God's love of the creation and mm. the complexities of God's dealings with 
with humankind and with the non-human creation, uh, uh, I have the freedom then. Uh, in fact, the mandate to exercise that freedom. Uh, but it always has to be on behalf of of the of the community of faith. Because mm-hmm. It's not a promiscuous. Uh, I, I just gave a talk recently about all this, and I I remembered a, a wonderful professor I had in college, English professor, and she was a tough lady. Uh, and in a, a graduate or a senior seminar in, in literature, we started talking about the depiction of sexuality in, in literature. And uh, she, as a, a Wesleyan Christian, very devout, uh, she was kind of sus- uh, suspicious of people who wanted to read a lot about sexuality <laughs> in in fiction, for example. And I was arguing that, uh, well, you know, we've got to know what sin is. We've got to understand mm-hmm. sin, and uh, including sexual sin. And mm-hmm. finally, she said in a very stern voice, Mr. Mao, uh, <laughs> We can know what trash is without lifting every lid of every garbage can in town and sniffing it. And uh, that was kind of a profound statement for me, as a uh, just as, as setting the boundaries. Uh, what is my motivation in in uh, exploring these ideas? Uh, is it a promiscuity uh, or a, a, just a desire to? Hey, I'm free to do anything, mm-hmm. or is it a, a freedom that is exercised uh, under a sense of, of obligation to a tradition and to and especially to to God? Yeah, no, you remind me of of uh, uh, a favorite author of mine is Flannery O'Connor, and yeah. and she, her subject matter is so often gritty, and I mean not to the extent that you see on. On television today, let's say, but nevertheless, she's dealing with the grotesque, as she says. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what benefit I've had from from just reading her short, short fiction? I mean, there there's so much there just to think about the human condition, and um, you know, uh, were, were the, were, it seems to me worthy subject matter for contemplation for the Christian. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, um, one of I, one of the things I wanted to give you a chance to talk about a little bit was uh, a favorite theologian of yours, Abraham Kuyper, um, and uh, you know his his famous quote uh, uh, that you that you refer to in the text of uh, the, our Lord crying out that every square inch is His. Um, how how does again maybe we've already covered some of this ground, but uh, the fact that Christ is Lord of all. Uh, that 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 frees us, does it not? Um, within uh, you know, again, as you've already noted, uh, within reasonable boundaries, where wherein we are truly seeking to serve Him in what we do. Um, would you say that's accurate? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and you know, there, there's a obviously there, there can be a kind of arrogance that one associates with that. You know, He's Lord of everything. We go out and claim it for Him, and like. But I, I take it to be more of a, a, a corrective, for example, of a kind of cognitive apartheid, you know, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, uh, well, I know we're, I know about Jesus and I know about things in the Bible, but uh, that doesn't have anything to do with chemistry or with uh, 19th century uh, British uh, novels mm-hmm. uh, or, or with anything in sociology. And I think he's saying rightly uh 
that every area of life and every subject area that deals with the creation uh, has to do with uh, what God is concerned about. Yes. And uh, so that uh, it, it's a mandate. Uh, and and the, the answers aren't always easy. I have, I, you know, if you ask me what is what is a Christian perspective on trigonometry? I, you know, those <laughs> are tough questions. Although I think somebody who specializes in that in that field ought to ask the question. Hmm. And uh, it may be uh, not the same kind of answer that you'd get when you say, "What does Christianity have to do with the study of race relations or the the history of violence?" Uh, mm-hmm. And or the philosophy of uh, of ethics, you know, moral philosophy. So th- there are different different ways of of getting at the subject matter, but but that God cares about how we do math. God cares about how we uh, you know study uh, social phenomena uh, and the natural sciences. I, th- I think is that's what Kuiper is getting at. And uh, I find that very inspiring. And in fact, I think that I have found in my own teaching that there there are students who, when they come across that, that's kind of a transformative thing for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, well, absolutely, it was. And and I came across um, uh, Kuiper's work in at, while I was a graduate student, and so um, it definitely was eye opening in in a, in, a, in a large. Uh, to a large degree, um, and I love the quote that you 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 uh, draw from. Again, it was it was Simone Weil, I believe, who who talked about studying geometry and what does it. Yeah. I mean, and it changes them for the better, regardless. I mean, yeah. And and you know, to the to to the degree that we can uh, appreciate the beauty, the simple beauty of mathematics, we're in, it, we as Christians are studying the works of our heavenly Father. In creation. And I think the word discovery is so important there that Mm -hmm. there's a tendency, especially in a kind of postmodern mood, uh, to think that we're constructing reality or we're constructing perspectives on reality. But uh, for the Christian, uh, there's always that element of discovery because uh, this is our father's world, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're not just sort of imposing order on the chaos. Uh, but we live in a cosmos, an ordered whole. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're always operating within that divinely established order. And uh, that's an important part of just our fundamental motivation in the intellectual life. Yeah. Well, I, I'd like to um, maybe turn a, a little bit toward um, things you might have to say to to scholars who are Christians and are struggling with um, with, with how to put the, the, the two the, the two parts of their lives that perhaps they see as disparate together um, and to do that I think one of the things that maybe would be useful for you is, would be to talk um, about the quotation that you um, used from Herman Bavink. Um, that for the Christian, two conversions are needed, one away from the world and one back toward the world. Yeah. How does that play for, for uh, uh, someone who's considering work as, uh, as an academic? Yeah, thank you. No, that's good. Well, I, I think the conversion away from the world is, is a very important part of the sort of drama that unfolds in the intellectual life for the Christian 
And that is our, our ultimate loyalty is to uh, the Lordship of Christ, and which is to say to God's creating and redeeming purposes in the world. And that means that, uh, you know, ultimately I'm not guided by the guild. I'm not guided by, you know, current trends or, or fads. Uh, but I need to, to be sure that I'm thinking Christianly about what it is that I'm studying. And uh, uh, that's very important, that sense of standing back from the ways that we might otherwise uh, view and, and uh, conceptualize the, the areas that we're entering into in our study. Uh, but at the same time, then, uh, an appreciation of the world, the recognition, and this comes from my you know, ideas about common grace, but you can do it with prevenient grace or natural law or general revelation. But the, but the fact that uh, we enter and into it, not simply to stand over against everything, but to be discerning about what we can learn from the study of the world, including other people with whom we may disagree about spiritual or theological matters and how they uh what they have discovered uh, about the world. Uh, John Calvin was uh, a Calvinist. <laughs> you know, he, he had this evangelical conversion. He believed in total depravity, and that affected all of life, including our minds. At the same time, he loved Seneca. He had studied law. And uh, he said some really positive things about the what he called the ancient pagan writers. And uh, and he said at one point, if you don't, if you're not willing to learn uh, whatever truths you may find in ancient pagan writers, you grieve the spirit of God. Mm. And uh, and so being converted back to the world is is a willingness to stand alongside of and to learn from, always with discernment. I mean, I, I think that's that's what we bring to it because we don't just absorb it, mm-hmm. uh, but we critically evaluate it. And so it's not just... Uh, as my my former colleague Nicholas Waldersdorf, good friend, would say, you know, it's not just that we have to devise our own theories, but that we have to test theories. And it may very well be uh, one of the great uh, liberation theologians of Latin America, uh, Jose Biquez Bonino, uh, when he was once, you know, challenged on uh, why do you take uh, Karl Marx so seriously? And uh, I necessarily don't necessarily agree with his use of Marxism, but he made a, a marvelous statement. He said, uh, Karl Marx is not my judge. God is my judge. But I need to allow Karl Marx to take the witness stand. Huh. And, uh, you know, we need to allow our secular colleagues to take the witness stand. Mm-hmm. And we need to listen to them and we need to test them against uh, the authority that is central in our lives, and that is uh, uh, God's truth. But all truth is God's truth. That's just a simple slogan, but a very important. Amen. No, absolutely. Well, um, I, I, and I hear echoes of of my next question in what you just uh, what you just said, um, and that and that is just considering the the what you would refer to perhaps as the virtues of Christian scholarship. Um, one which comes up uh, time and again in 
various ways in this in this book is is humility and and the need for humility as scholars as scholars are scholars aren't always known for their humility um but uh but but chief among the virtues of the christian scholar should be humility i would think yeah yeah and and uh you know i i have sort of two things that go into the case for intellectual humility uh, on the part of christians uh the one is uh a generic, I think any Christian should agree with this. We're finite. Uh, it's one thing to say, you know, uh, we accept God's truth, but, but God's ways are above our ways. His, his thoughts surpass ours. And so, uh, you get a lot of that in the, in the scriptures that, uh, you know, we see through a glass darkly. Uh, it does not yet appear what we shall be. And so there's a kind of cognitive, Humility that's based simply on the affirmation of our finitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if there were no sin in the world, even if we're in heaven, uh, we're not God, never will be. And uh, there's a sense in which uh, we, we have to have this intellectual humility in the presence of the God who, uh, you know, who, who knows it all. And we don't. Uh, but secondly, uh, as a as a Calvinist, I believe in in sin and the power of sin on the human mind. And so it's not just that I'm finite, but that there's a tendency to, uh, as a sinful creature, to distort. And uh, that means I have to constantly be asking, you know, the Psalm 139, which is one of my favorite psalms, and the psalmist says, Lord, I hate your enemies with a perfect hatred. You know, you and I are on the same side. And then it's like he stops and says, whoops, just a minute. (laughs) And then he says, search me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Mm. And uh, to me, that's a profoundly important element in a Christian's understanding of the intellectual life, that there's a kind of being searched by God to see whether we've got it wrong uh, out of a deliberate or even a subliminal kind of rebellion uh against the truth that that lingers with us until you know we see him face to face mm-hmm. i i think sometimes what we're prone to do is to uh, compartmentalize our lives in in such a way as to, to say that my confession of my sin is something that i do in the closet or i do on sunday morning but it is not really connected to my academic work, um, and that's just crazy <laughs> in, yeah, in, some, in, in, in some sense. And so um, we're we're running a little bit short on time, so I, I, I want to leave one one more opportunity to talk a little bit about how you might speak to those Christians who aren't yet really connected with other Christians in academia yeah. and talk about the value of that for us um, as in our work together. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, you know, one of the books I, I, I mentioned that had a profound influence on me and I think is a, a classic for all of us in the intellectual life is by a very fine Lutheran scholar, uh, Mark Schwein at uh, Valparaiso University. And uh, he wrote this book, Exiles from Eden, uh, in which he, he talks about the, the the importance of having Christian centers of learning 
where uh, worship can be integrated with the scholarly and pedagogical uh, life. And, and his point is that uh, traditionally in the academy, uh, the uh, you know, obviously the the academy in the West was was basically founded by people of faith, mm-hmm. uh, and that the the uh, the the virtues of things like faith and trust and uh, self examination and the like were were very much a part of the academy, and they had a profound impact on the way in which scholarship got done, because uh, without uh, having faith in other people without trusting other people without being devoted to the truth and honesty and integrity, uh, the academic life falls apart. Mm. And he says, you know, the academy today, the larger secular academy is living on borrowed capital, uh, living on the, the, the remnants of virtues that were that of necessity to be sustained, have to be grounded in the practices of, of, of spiritual community of worship and like, mm-hmm. and he said so. So the the Christian college or the Christian university or the seminary uh, aren't just sort of marginal things, but in many ways, what we're doing in integrating worship and other spiritual practices with academic pursuits is uh, is for the sake of the academy, uh, keeping alive the connections that might otherwise be lost. Now, a lot of our Christian colleagues are not in Christian colleges and universities. Uh, I've got wonderful friends at uh, University of Illinois, Harvard University, uh, in a variety of disciplines. But it's so important for us to find ways of staying connected to them. Uh, And and I I think what we have seen in recent years is some some wonderful thing. The uh, Society of Christian Philosophers. The Conference on Faith and History, uh, BioLogos. I'm on the board of BioLogos, and you know, bringing together people in the natural sciences, uh, together with the, from major universities, together with people from uh, who are practicing people like Francis Collins, and uh, mm-hmm. and then people at Christian uh, colleges and universities uh, to to maintain a kind of vital connection of fellowship of, of, of support I mean I, th- I think we ought to be praying for Francis Collins mm-hmm. uh, we ought to be praying for the guy who teaches uh, chemistry at the University of Wisconsin uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and not just hoping that their churches will pray for them because I think churches have not been very supportive of, mm-hmm. of the, the academic vocation mm-hmm. uh, you, you seldom hear prayers on behalf of uh, of people in evolutionary biology, you know, from the right. Uh, mm. But uh, uh, there have to be some of us who are very much aware of what it's like to be a Christian out there on the front lines of of teaching in a in a history department uh, dominated by postmodernism, mm. and what it means for us to have genuine supportive connections with uh, with folks, our, our Christian colleagues. So I think the, the whole networking thing and the ways in which uh, I gave an example of my book of a, mm-hmm. of a, a Catholic political scientist who sort of came out of the closet after about 20 years saying, mm-hmm. I was at a meeting of, of, of a group of Christians at the American Political Science Association and 
I've never said this on the, this university campus before, but I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and I, I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah. And what a risk that was for him to say that. But it was because he had experienced a fellowship of Christians within political science mm-hmm. uh, who were really connecting their faith and their spiritual practices with the study of uh, of political processes and patterns and institutions. That's very exciting to me. Yeah, oh, very much so. Well, do you have one more word that you might like to, to offer to our audience? Uh, well, you know, I, I see as a person who within days is, uh, within at least a couple of weeks, going to be 75 years old and been at this since uh, my college days. Uh, I just think that a genuine call to the intellectual life and and more particularly the intellectual life within the academy uh, is so exciting. Mm. Yeah. I would not have uh, for myself wanted it any other way. I I know the market forces are different these days and all the rest, but uh, one of the great blessings in my life has been to, to see a, a newer generation, younger generations coming in with a genuine enthusiasm for serving God in uh, the whole range of uh, academic disciplines and sub-disciplines and mm-hmm. all the rest. And uh, uh, my my own words are, are are meant not to be, you know, authoritative words of some expert on it all, but just uh, a fellow traveler who just wants to encourage other people on the journey. Well, that's that's very helpful, and uh, as I often tell my students, I can't believe I get paid for what I do <laughs> because this is the, is the best job in the world, um, at least in my book. But uh, it's been a great pleasure, uh, Dr. Mal, to talk to you today. And, oh, it's uh, wonderful. Thank you. It's been an exciting conversation. I much appreciate your time. Dear listeners, if you'd like to get a copy of Dr. Mao's book called To the Life of the Mind, it is available at all the usual outlets at a very modest price. If you're in academia, either as a student or a faculty member or administrator, I especially recommend it to you. It's well worth uh, the cost. And I hope today's show has been an encouragement to you and given you food for thought and discussion. Christian Humanist Profiles is a podcast in the Christian Humanist Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt, and our press liaison is Christian Philippic. For Christian Humanist Profiles, this has been Todd Pedler signing off until next time. Thanks for listening.